Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Good morning. Um, If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 18. This is where we still are in the story of 2 Samuel, the life of David and others. Um, But I wanted to start off with a question. What do you want from me? What do you want from me? There's quite a few different ways of asking that question, actually, I think. Um, Probably you can kind of ask it in an exasperated way um, when you've been trying to do something for someone and it never seems to be good enough and you might cry out, well, what do you want from me? Like, what else can I give you? Perhaps you might ask it with a slightly quizzical tone, not maybe as exasperated. Someone comes along and you're surprised that it's to you that they're making their request and so you might say, well, what do you want from me? Maybe you don't like the person who's coming to you, and it's, what do you want from me? Well, I think there is a sense in which the Scriptures, every time we open them up, ask us that question. What do you want from me? That's what the Bible asks of us when we open it, to read it, to study it, to learn from it. It asks us, what are we expecting to find when we come to Letters from Paul to churches written centuries ago. Um, Gospel accounts of the life, the words, the teaching, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Prophecies given to a nation miles and miles away from where we live now. Stories of people, characters we know well like David and others. What, What do you want from them? What do you expect when you come to God's word? I think a very common answer that we would give would be something along the lines of this. We want from you, in some way, shape, or form, guidance. Whether that's rules, whether that's lessons, commands, instructions, that sort of thing. We want you, dear scriptures, to tell us how we can live the best way possible. And by the best way possible, we might mean the way in which we get the most out of life. Have you ever opened up the Bible or come along on a Sunday morning and expected someone or it to tell you how to live your life so that you can be as happy and as carefree and as productive and as just blessed as possible? That's one answer we could give. We could give an answer along the lines of, we want those lessons and those rules because I need to know, I need to be sure that I'm living the way God wants me to live. And again, that's a perfectly fair sort of thing to ask of it. What do you want from me? I want you to tell me what God expects of me. If you believe in God and you understand that he is supreme, that he is king, that he is in charge of everything, that he has made the world that we live in, that he has made each one of us, then of course we'd want to know his instructions for what it looks like to live as a human being. Come to the Bible, what do you want from me? It asks us and we'd say, show us what God's plan is for my life, that I can follow 
the instructions that he set out, the, the path, the journey that he wants me to live. Of course, there are plenty of commands in Scripture. There are plenty of lessons. We will have looked at the life of David already over this term and last year when we were in 1 Samuel, and we could see and we could draw out things that help us and show us exactly what we've just discussed now, ways that we can live our lives and we can genuinely be happier in them, forgiving our enemies rather than bearing grudges. Do you know what? If you look at the Bible, you see that lesson in David's life, you will be set free from so many painful and crippling situations. We've come and we will have seen what it looks like to be someone who, who God in, endorses in some way, shape, or form. We can have listened to certain commands. You should, you should follow God's commandments. We were thinking about the ark not so long ago and how that was being brought up. And God has some very clear instructions about how it should be dealt with, how it should be interacted with, what they were supposed to do. We found that. And elsewhere in the, in the Scriptures, we'll find laws and regulations. We'll find explicit commands in places like Paul's letters on how we're supposed to live godly, Christian, Christ-shaped lives. We look even at the life of Jesus and we think, ah, that's what it means to be a proper human being. And we see it and we take it out and we've got that lesson to go away and live. But I want to suggest to you this morning that those being good questions, they're not, or answers to the question, what do you want from me? They're good answers, but they're not the main answer. They're not the best answer that we could give. You see, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, Pauline read it out to us, was dealing with people who had come to the Scriptures and been asked the question, what do you want to find? And they'd found those rules they found those regulations. They'd even found promises to encourage them and to pick them up and to spur them on to live their lives. They were expecting a Messiah to come. They knew the Bible, and yet they didn't see how it all pointed and led to Jesus. In another episode of Jesus' life, he's discussing with some people um, what it means to have life, to find life, and this is how he kind of summed up the argument or the discussion, discussion that he was having with them. He said, you lot, you study the scriptures diligently. You're in there. It's asking you that question, and you're asking questions of it. What do you mean? Why have you said that? Where should I be looking? What should I be doing? You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. So they had an answer. What do you want from me? They wanted eternal life. Jesus said, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, the best answer that we can give when we come to any part of the Bible and it asks us the questions, what do you want from me, is to say, we want Jesus. Show us Jesus. We may want life, and Jesus says there to them, that if you want life, you're only going to get life through me. We may want to see what it is to be a human in the proper, most fullest sense of it, how God intended and imagined that we might live our lives. We only, we only really see that when we see Jesus. We might want rules for living to be happy, but if we follow those and miss out on Jesus, we have absolutely nothing. You see, wherever you go, whatever it is ultimately that you're seeking, we're only going to get there with Jesus. 
via Jesus. Like, imagine if you are getting on a train. The train might not be where you want to end up. You might want to arrive in London Paddington, but you certainly won't get there unless you get on the chain. And whatever answer we might have for what we want from Scriptures, if we're not going via Jesus or on Jesus, then we're going to go nowhere. So, have that question in your mind as we work our way through 2 Samuel 18. What do you want from me? This is what the Scriptures are asking. And the answer that I'm suggesting we should give this morning is that we would like very much to see Jesus today. So, as I said, open it up, 2 Samuel chapter 18. And just to catch you up to where we are, remember Absalom, uh, David's son, he was welcomed back to Jerusalem and then welcomed back into the king's court. Um, and he took that as his cue to start whispering lies, interfering in the lives of the people who were coming to David to steal the hearts of the people away from their king. And he leads a rebellion. He sets himself up as a king as opposed to David, and David has to flee from Jerusalem, fearing for his life and fearing for the lives of the people who are staying loyal to him. That's pretty much where John got us to last week. There are people who gather around David, who encourage him, who support him. There are people who gather around David to throw stones, to, to throw insults, to throw curses on him because they're not on his side. And then there are people who gather around Absalom to give advice. How is Absalom um, at long last going to kind of make this rebellion in the making? How is he going to make it signed, sealed, and delivered? How is he going to like grab hold of the throne and really hold on to it? And there's various pieces of advice that people give, but ultimately it's one of David's um, friends, a spy that David sends back to Absalom's camp, who kind of tricks him and twists him into doing what we're going to read about in chapter 18. So David is out of Jerusalem. He's in hiding. He's got a smallish force around him ready to fight. Absalom set himself up in Jerusalem. He has waited a little bit of time and amassed more and more troops so that he can go out hunting for David, hunting him in order to kill him. And that's where we are when we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18. I'll read the first couple of verses. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, and a third under Ittai, the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care, but you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city." The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. And the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of his commanders. So there's about to be a battle David, in his head, thinks he's going to do what he has done in so many battles before, that is, lead the people out into the fight. 
His troops say, well, no, that's not the best idea because ultimately Absalom doesn't want to defeat us as a group. He just wants to kill you. So let us go out and fight and you kind of um, support us from the city. You call the shots, you pull the strings, you maybe have some men in reserves to come and send and support us when we need them. David says that is a sensible thing. He'll go along with that if that's what they actually want. And then he gives them this special command, these final rousing words as they're about to go and fight. Do you know that guy who's in charge of the rebellion? Do you know that guy who's made it so that we have been kicked out of our homes and we've got to come and live in pits and hiding? Do you know that guy who, because of the decisions and the actions that he has taken, we are now about to go to war? Deal gently with him. Deal gently with him for my sake. Verse 6. This is the account of the battle. It's pretty short, actually. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Then is there Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. There's been a lot of preamble there have been chapters kind of building up to this, and when it finally happens, all we read is that David's men are the ones who are coming out victorious. 20,000 people on the enemy side, on Absalom's side, have died. But what about Absalom himself? Well, that's where we go in verse 9. Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, which, by the way, sounds to us a little bit silly, a mule? Like, what's this king doing riding a mule? But I am assured by the commentators that the mule was the most royal regal of steeds. This is like prestige for him. Remember, they're not supposed to have horses and chariots. So this is his status symbol. This is him declaring to everyone that he is king. He's riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair literally between earth and heaven. And while the mule he was riding kept on going, one of the men saw what had happened, and he told Joab, I have just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Then why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out in my hand, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. If I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you'd have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and he plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. Ten of Joab's armor-bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no sons to carry on the memory of my name. And he named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. So for Absalom, this battle is literally the last battle. 
before his rule, before his reign, before his rebellion really had ever got a chance to get off the ground and get started, it has come to a spectacular end in such a sad way. What happens next then is that David hears what's gone on with his son. Two people from the battle basically have a race back to give David this news. And, well, remember how David has taken news like this in the past in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1, there was the person who was very keen to come and tell David that Saul had died. Saul, again, David's sworn enemy, the man who had hunted David for a decade. He was dead. David was free to become king. This individual, the Amalekite, thought that he was delivering good news. And what happened to him? He ended up being killed. What about the guys who came to um, uh, share the news that they had killed others in order for David to ascend to the throne? Well, exactly the same thing happened. David reacted with rage. They were killed. So how might you expect David to respond to this news now? With joy, with singing, with dancing, with frustration. You didn't listen to my commands, with anger. Pick it up in verse 32. The king said to the Cushite, that's one of the guys who had the race to get there, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. In other words, he's dead. Verse 33, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said this, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab finds out, chapter 19, first couple of verses, that David is grieving as he has done when he's had news of his enemy's death in the past. Um, but grieving, like overwhelmed with sadness because his son has died. And Job speaks some really like blunt, harsh words to David. He says, you are treating me, commander of your army, you're treating your soldiers really bad. Because as you mourn his death, you're basically saying that you don't care about us who put our necks, put our lives on the line for you now. Shape up, dry your eyes, and go and be king to these people. And that's exactly what David does. So that's the story that we have this morning. That's the chapter, the episode in David's life in Bible history that we come to contend with. And having been asked the question, what do you want from me? And having given the answer, we want Jesus, please. Where on earth is Jesus in this story? Where on earth is Jesus in the whole story of David versus Absalom? A father versus his own son. Where is Jesus in the story of the battle, of the division that exists between certain tribes in Israel? Of a nation that is divided, not just a household. Where is Jesus in the story of an overzealous general who has received an explicit command from his king and ignores it and kills someone who he could have taken captive? 
Where is Jesus in a story of war and bloodshed? Where is the Prince of Peace? That's what we call Jesus, isn't it? It's easy to see why we skip over and ignore some stories. Because if we come asking the question or or, or expecting the answer that I've suggested, Jesus, then we'll read this story and we'll think, it seems so far away from the meek, mild, gentle, gracious, loving, caring man who we meet in the Gospels. If we come looking for an example of how to live our lives, to enjoy our lives, to be as happy and as free and as contented as we can be, we see this story and we say, well, I'll put that on the back burner, on the back shelf, for a time when I'm at war with someone, perhaps, but how else could it be relevant? If we're coming to it and we're expecting it to give us an explicit command from God, this is how you are supposed to behave, then we struggle because we're picking apart, well, which action is the good action? Which action is the bad action? Who am I copying? Who am I mimicking? It's easy to see why we skip over passages like this or or we learn the stories and take nothing away from them. But there is so much Jesus in that chapter alone. This week, I have been jumping up and down. I just want to share with you two ways in which this story of David and Absalom, of Joab and Absalom's demise, I just want to show you two ways in which these pages these characters, these happenings shout and they scream Jesus to us. The first one, or the one I suppose that excites me the most, is this. How we see Jesus in David's desire. So think about the command that he gives his generals just as they're about to go off to fight. Deal gently with the young man Absalom for my sake. It's a really weird thing to tell your generals. There's, there's an element of David having um, plotted or devised a military strategy that is good. He's got three sections of troops. He's got three commanders over each. It's probably tactics he's learned through a lifetime of fighting against Israel's enemies. It really does not make sense to say, and when you get to the, to the, to the root cause... When you get to the the head of the serpent, take it easy, be nice, be gentle. We see it even more when he hears about Absalom having died. These words, they're astounding. My son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. If only I had died instead of you. It seems that no matter how far Absalom goes... No matter how much he rebels against his own father, no matter how much he instigates a people to reject the king, David's heart is still that things would go well for his son. David still desperately desires peace and life and prosperity and blessing in Absalom's existence. David says, literally, ah. That is not good news. I wish somehow I'd have been able to die instead of you. If you don't see Jesus there, then let me explain it to you. David's desire is that instead of the rebel dying, that the 
just, the right, the consequences of that rebellion be met on himself. He wishes that he could take Absalom's place. But of course he can't, can he? His soldiers won't allow it. Um, Salvation history won't allow it. But Christ could and did do that exact thing, didn't he? Jesus said that he had come to die in our place. You see, it might be uttered from the mouth of David in chapter 18, but it is the desire of God that he should stand in the place of judgment, that he should stand in the place of separation for us. Do you see it? Even in a story about people we have so weirded out by, in circumstances that we don't really like to linger on, we see Jesus proclaimed to us. Where is Jesus in this story? Jesus is the aching, unfulfilled desires of David's heart. We do have a God who steps in and dies in our place. That's the first place. I think that's just awesome to see. How about in Absalom's actual death? Now, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading the story, I think to myself, good for you, mate. You've got what you deserve. Okay, because I've been in chapter 15, and I've read about how Absalom has schemed in the most sneakiest of ways to rob the affections, to rob the attention, to rob the power from his dad. Remember what he was doing at the gate? He was literally getting in between people coming to the king for justice. He was getting in between um, the people and the king, and he was saying, ah, it's a shame. It's a shame that you've come with these requests and this um, judgment that you need ruling on. I think what you're saying sounds great, but if you go any further, you're not going to find anybody who's interested, anybody who's going to listen, anyone's going to do anything about it. If only I was made king, I'd make sure that you saw justice. You know, it's so, so schemy. It's so conniving. And then he's tricked people to go out to Hebron with him. He's kind of made this fantastic situation where there are hundreds of people gathered. They think that they're there for a religious festival. But he's told someone to blow a trumpet at a particular time. And a couple of people then to start this chorus of Absalom is king, Absalom is king. And just made it seem as if everybody's on board with this. Like it's everybody's decision. And then he's gone, we didn't particularly read these, but he's gone into Jerusalem when David's fled and he's just done some of the most atrocious things to, to really, it says in this text, to make his name like a stench to David. There's no turning back. To really rub his dad's nose in it and to say, I'm in charge now, not you. So I read the story of him dying and I think to myself, yeah, good on, good on Joab. Good on Joab for finally, well, not finally, there's a couple, quite a few scenes in Joab's life where he does the, the just thing, really, where he, where he comes through. But I, I'm glad Absalom got his, you know, just desserts. That he got hung up in that tree, and he got stabbed by the spears, this dog of a man. I'm glad. And I think, I, I don't know. I, you, you judge me, you tell me what you think if I'm wrong to think that. 
But it doesn't seem to me that Absalom gets anything more than he deserves. With the information we've got, it doesn't seem to me that he gets anything more than he deserves. But think about some of the elements around that death. Think about some of the elements around that death. Verse 16, having killed Absalom and 20,000 other soldiers in the Israelite army, Joab sounds the trumpet, and the troops stop pursuing the rest of Israel. Joab halted them. They bury Absalom, and it says this, the Israelites fled to their home. Having been killed, Joab then blows the trumpet, and this is the picture that we have. Because the one man has died, everyone else gets to go home free. Does that make sense? That because this one person has died, the trumpet can sound, and there doesn't need to be any more bloodshed. There doesn't need to be any more division. There doesn't need to be any more hostility because the one man has died. That's exactly how the New Testament authors pick up the story of Jesus, isn't it? That the one who desired to stand in our place did die, the one for the many, so that the many could go free. And if you're not entirely convinced by that, look at the sort of death that Absalom dies. There are so many like weird aspects to it, but aspects which really, really speak to us of Jesus' death. Absalom is hung in a tree. He's hanging on a tree or from a tree. That's the exact language that the New Testament authors used to describe Jesus on the cross. That Jesus was hung on a tree. Um, earlier in Israelite uh, history, in um, the law of Moses, it describes anyone who is hung on a tree as being cursed, as being rejected by God. And there's this little phrase that says that he is in midair. In the NIV we have here, in other translations, it said he was suspended between heaven and earth as if he's been judged and rejected by both, that Absalom can find nowhere to go in heaven with God or on earth amongst men. That's exactly the picture that we have of Jesus, rejected by mankind, hung on a tree, rejected by God, my Father, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and dying. But not only dying, but dying and being laid behind stones. Stones are so important in the burial story of Jesus, aren't they? And they're important here. That they take Absalom, they put him in a pit, and they heap large rocks over the top of him. Now, point of discontinuity. With Absalom, that is precisely where it finishes. Absalom is dead and buried. He's been hung on a tree suspended, rejected by earth, man, and, and heaven, and God. He's been laid behind some rocks, and that's where it finishes. There's a weird little bit, verses uh, 18, which speak about the fact that he's got no sons to carry on his name. Like for Absalom, this is it, lying in the sand. He and his name and all that's bound up with that go no further. What we have with Jesus is someone who dies in the same way who dies rejected, who dies accursed, who is buried behind a stone. But that isn't the end of the story. When we turn to the story of Jesus, it's the stone is moved away. 
that the one who has died in our place, the single for the many, rises to life again. So here's, there isn't a line in the sand that says that is the end of Jesus. Actually, Jesus is alive forevermore. And he is able to give us his name. Absalom's name stops there. Jesus' life and his name carries on. So, I mean, those are just two things, or maybe it's three things. There's a couple in Absalom's death there. That as I was looking at this passage this week, and I was thinking, well, where is Jesus and all this? They just jumped out of me. Why does it, why does it matter to, to see that about Jesus? Why does it matter to see that from the story? Because having found Jesus, Jesus said you're supposed to come to him to find life. When Paul speaks about us understanding the truth about who God is in Jesus, we're supposed to be led to live godly life. So it is supposed to transform us. Well, I just want to encourage you with these two thoughts to close then. The first thought is this, is that no matter how rebellious you think you are or how, you, how rebellious you understand yourself to be, you can still be accepted by your Father in heaven. Like, in this story, it's almost offensive. It is offensive to Joab and the troops that David is willing and hoping to welcome Absalom back into his arms. And there are times and there are ways and there are places that we can see ourselves or consider ourselves and we can say, do you know what? I just can't go back to God. I'm too far gone. You, you know of relationships that you've got, or maybe you've witnessed this in other people's relationships. It breaks my heart when I see it. Where someone does something, they realize the gravity of what they've done and how it has wrecked the relationship with someone else. And instead of pursuing reconciliation, instead of pursuing forgiveness, they decide for the other person there's no way back. I've hurt you too much. There's no point in even trying to go back. Breaks my heart when I see people doing that. They've said things, they've done things, and they just say, no, that, that door has closed. How much more, how greater a tragedy is it when we do that with God, when we recognize, we see in stories like this, and we see in Jesus that we can be welcomed. Even the worst of us, even the best of us, even those of us who think that we're all right with God because of ourselves, because we're good sorts, because we've come to the Bible and we've learned a couple of lessons and we think we've got it figured out what God wants from us, that he'd be lucky to have us. We see Jesus. We see the desire of God that he could stand in the place of rebels, that he could die for us so that we could still be welcomed back in, that we could still experience life and blessing, no matter how rebellious, how unlovely, unwelcomable you think you are, there is a welcome for you through Christ. The second thing is this. We see and we understand one person dying in the place of the many. We see Jesus dying in our place. Do we see 
that we get to live in Jesus' place. Play fantasy with me for a second, okay? Fan fiction of what could have happened in David and Absalom's life. Let's just say David had his way. That David had marched out to battle at the front of those three sections of troops. That what the troops said was going to happen would have happened. And what David ultimately desired to happen, that he would die instead of Absalom. What then? What would have happened then? Absalom would have been king. Absalom would have gone back to Jerusalem and enjoyed the fullness of everything that belonged to the true king, wouldn't he? Had David got his way and died instead of Absalom, Absalom would have experienced everything that went along with being king. Now, as I say, that is fan fiction for what could have happened at the end of 2 Samuel 18, but that is reality. That is reality for those of us who have come to Christ. As rebellious as we are, as unlovely as we are, the king having died in our place means that we have the life that Jesus has to live. He willingly takes our death and in its place gives us wonderful everlasting life. It's not a one-way substitution. We have that. We have His name. We get to be called children of the Most High. We get to look forward with genuine, certain hope of eternal, everlasting life in the presence of the Father. That is what we get in exchange for the death that Jesus has taken. It's not just the removal of something, but is the gifting to us of everything. So where is Jesus? Show us Jesus. That's what we want to know. Well, I've given you a couple of hints. There's so much more in this passage that I could have said. But he's there in the desire of David to stand in our place. He's there in the death of Absalom, one for the many. And it means that we, no matter how rebellious we are, can be accepted and then we don't just have our death taken away, but we have Jesus' life given to us. I'm going to pray, and we're going to respond in song. Lord God, we thank you that when we come to your word, Lord, it is deep, it is rich. People testify to spending decades, maybe a century, studying it and still being amazed at what they find. Lord, help us as a church to continue to be a people who come to your word and see Jesus, who meet Jesus. And not just find Jesus, but find a Jesus who takes us to life. Lord, who perhaps holds a mirror up to us and shows us how unlovely we are, but helps us so clearly to see how lovely he is, how important he is, how powerful he is, how gracious and loving he is how he is above all things. Lord, help us to see and to understand that wonderful story which spans the entirety of the Scriptures, of the Messiah who would come and who would rescue, who would do what is necessary for the rebels to be reconciled, for those do death to be handed life and to enjoy it forevermore. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who 
truly does see themselves as unwelcomable people who see themselves only as people who God should turn away. Lord, open their eyes this morning to see that heart, that desire of David in our Heavenly Father, multiplied, magnified, increased so many times. And Lord, those of us who have come and have seen how Jesus can die in our place and take away all that guilt, all that punishment, all that filth, all that wrongdoing. Lord, help us to start to see and to explore what it means to be people who have Jesus' life. Help us to see and to understand what it means to be able not to look at you suspiciously, but to look at you lovingly as your children. Help us to see what it means to be people who are welcomed into the king's court. To have all the blessings and the advantages of that. Lord, help us to be people who see clearly that the stones that were laid on top of Jesus, they could never be the end because he defeated death. He has risen again to new glorious life and that is the life that he has given us. Lord, we thank you so much for that this morning. And we pray more and more that you would help us to see Jesus. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.